Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. This is part two of our conversation with Gil Hance. If you missed part one, be sure to check it out in iTunes, Stitcher, or on the website. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review in the iTunes Podcast Center. Um, This really helps us out, and we really appreciate it. Without further ado, here's part two of the Gil Hans podcast. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. What's something that you wish the regular golfer understood more about your job? I think that there's a, there's a lot of um, nuance and subtlety and, and thought that goes into, um, you know, every almost there's not many things that happen by accident, although sometimes good stuff happens by accident, but you, you know, you, you you keep it for a reason. So I think that there's, there's a lot of thought that goes into every little bump and bounce on a, on a golf course, most every contour that goes into it. And, you know, myself included, most average golfers are just trying to get the ball airborne and just, you know, not thinking about strategy or the different, um, you know, the way things are impacting the game in sort of very quiet ways. And so I think that that's something that, um, people look at our golf courses and think that sometimes there's just, comes about by happenstance but for the most part everything is really well thought out and well planned um and and is hopefully having an impact on on the way the game is played or at least an impact on the thought process of how people approach it is there like a particular green or hole at one of your courses where you just worked on it for seemingly days that you just couldn't get right for a long time and then you finally got it I think what what tends to happen is um, we sometimes you get fooled, <laughs> you know. You at the end of the day you're shaping something, and then you go and you survey it, and you check out the grades, and make sure everything works, and make sure everything's going where you expect it to go. And so I think more more often than sort of working, working, working to get something, sometimes you're working on it, and then you you survey it and you shoot it, and you're like, oh my god, that's doing exactly the opposite of what I thought, and that can be an influence from surrounding slopes or you know you just don't judge the grade you're trying to build a green that's going back towards the player and and the ground is all falling away and your eye is just deceived by the the way the ground sits so i think that there's more uh, redoing or struggling um or sort of more frequent edits based on the fact that you're i'm not seeing what i think is is actually happening and when that happens it's kind of funny actually we get a good chuckle out of that. So it's that that's more frequently the way it works. And, and because a lot of, you know, we've been very fortunate recently to work on a lot of sandy sites. And so we, we can refine the contours and greens all the way down into the very last second. Like if you're building a USGA green, once you build the cavity, you're pretty well stuck. I mean, you can play around with an inch or two here or there, but you can't just make six-inch cuts or make a lot of big edits to the because then you're screwing up the profile of the green with the gravel blanket and the whole thing. So on sandy sites, we can shape something in with a dozer or an excavator and then put the sand in place, and, and but then we've got a lot more fine edits that can be made with the sand pro or that can be made with rakes and shovels. So I think that allows us to continually refined hopefully improve and sometimes that process goes in different directions than you ever thought it might go and, and again that's hopefully the results that that come from that are, are better than than what you intended when you started out building it so we're at pinehurst and you just built you just finished up uh the third course at streamsong how's building a course at an already established property different than building one at a new property well you you have um 
you have other courses that you're responding to, whether you're doing it purposely or not. You, it's just you can't help but understand that there are other properties here that you're you're trying to make a golf course that is compatible with, but you're also trying to make a golf course that hopefully quality wise is at least equal to um, what what already exists there. So, as it relates to stream song, it was interesting because both golf courses are by you know, the modern guys that we respect the most. So you have Bill and Ben doing the red course and Tom Doak doing the blue course. So we were putting our work alongside, you know, the modern architects who we think do the best work. So there was a standard that was held up at that point in time that we wanted to respond to. There was a, a style um, that, you know, we all sort of generally live in that rugged, rough, rustic style. So that we knew that was going to be compatible. And then we, we looked at, all right, how do we differentiate it? And it was, at Streamsong, it was all about the site. You know, our site was bigger, broader, not nearly as dramatic uh, as far as the, the landforms are concerned. And red and blue were purposely co-mingled and co-designed to, to flow together so they're a little bit more compact. So the reaction there was, okay, let's look at it from a scale perspective. Let's try and do something bigger and maybe a little bit bolder than those two golf courses. Here at Pinehurst, the reaction is to a completely different, I mean, it's a historic golf course it has been a standard for greatness in this country for decades um, designed by one of the greatest architects of all time and then restored by you know the greatest architects of the modern era bill and ben so we're looking next door and we're literally a butt course number two and you know a lot of people said well you're going to build greens like course number two and i thought no that'd be the stupidest thing we could ever do because the finest example of those greens already exists right next door. So what are we trying to do? Outdo course number two? So no, we, you know, there are some elements of the greens on course number two that might find their way into to our greens. But for the most part, we're trying to build a golf course that's compatible. And, you know, you, I'd be lying if I didn't say that there's sort of competition. I mean, we all try to do our best work. And so we don't want to build the the golf course that's, that's considered to be the worst at any of the places we work. And you know, I had to great fortune of being at a dinner last night where Bill Coor was speaking. And he said, you know, these resorts and these destination places, they really succeed only when the quality of golf is spread across the entire spectrum. You know, if, if Bandon had five golf courses and there were two of them that nobody wanted to play and three that everyone wanted to play, well, then that doesn't work. You want to have the five golf courses spread equally. And, and same thing as stream song. If, you know, it's easy and I think it's great that, you know, there are people who love each, every, you know, there's people who are big advocates for blue. There are people who are big advocates for red and, and similarly for black and to be able to have those conversations. And, you know, as well as I do, when you have conversations about golf architecture, there's no, literally, there's no rights or wrongs. There's no black and whites, but there's, there's just all these shades of gray. And so people like them for all those different reasons. And so, you know, I don't think it's ever our expectation that, of course, we're going to build something that's going to outshine course number two. But we wanted to build a golf course that would make people who come to Pinehurst Resort say, hey, you got to play number two, obviously. But now you really have to play number four also. And um, so I, it's been an interesting, uh, interesting project. Bill and I joke an awful lot about how we just follow in their footsteps. And he's the trailblazer and pioneer, and he gets to live in the rough and rugged, you know, establishments and and by the time we show up the hotels are done and everything's perfect and we get to live in donald ross's house and we have a little bit of uh, back and forth banter on that but anytime you get to work alongside those guys and anytime you get to work at a, at a place as historic as pinehurst i mean how lucky are we what are some of the biggest challenges that you faced with number four it's um course that was originally designed by Ross for people that don't know and then it's been worked on by Robert Trent Jones, Reese Jones and Tom Fazio. I think the the biggest challenge we had and what's been the most interesting thing from our perspective is that through all of those various iterations the golf course became detached from the landscape. I mean there was a lot of different shaping, there was a lot of different um, earth moving on the site and you know, Ross considered it and wrote about that it was probably the most dramatic of all the sites you had to work with here at the core of the resort. And it's got great topography and, and great interest. So our goal was to try to reconnect that landscape 
was to start put the ridges back where the ridges were, put the valleys back where they were, not you know just looking at tree line to tree line and reconnecting the landscape. So it was an interesting exercise. Normally, when you when you're building a new golf course, you're trying to find the golf holes and you're trying to find the places in the landscape where they exist. With course number four, with just a few exceptions, we were working in the same corridors of of the golf course, so the routing didn't change dramatically. But within those corridors, our goal was to reconnect the landscape almost as if we just found it in its natural state. And then once we put the landscape back, then we all started talking about, okay, where do the bunkers go? What's the strategy? Where are you supposed to hit it? How does this whole thing fall into place? So it was kind of a backwards exercise of, of restoring the landscape before you even then start designing the golf holes. And it's been fun and challenging. And I think that, uh, I mean, a lot of credit to to Brent Vest and Brett Brennan and, and the guys that are sort of doing a lot of the heavy lifting on our projects and doing a lot of the shoving and pushing around. And they, I think they've really nailed it. They've done a great job with, with restoring that landscape. And now we're all sort of the rest of the team is following behind. And I, I think we're making some, some very interesting <clears throat> design decisions. Some of them based on what Ross had done. We've, we have his old, the old aerial photographs from course number four. So we've taken some of the bunker patterns and some of the sort of grassing lines from that golf course. But at the end of the day, it'll, it'll be one of our original designs. And, and I mean, we're, we're really excited about how we think it's going to fit into the overall landscape here in Pinehurst. It's a cool sight having walked around it the last couple of days. It's got some, some movement, some dramatic, you know, uh, holes, some, it's, it's a cool piece of topography. It's a lot different than number two, but you know, you fly over it. I mean, you go from two and then the landscape stays consistent across, which is, which is neat. Thank you. Another new design you have is a hoopy match club and it's a course that's built for match play. And I mean, it's pretty neat that keeping score and talking about your score is frowned upon there. How is building a course for match play versus traditional stroke play? I think that, that Jim and I really enjoyed that opportunity. You know, working with Mike Walrath, the owner, he's just one of the greatest guys, and he loves golf. He's passionate about it. He, he's a good player. And so when he came to us and, and we talked about this piece of ground, which oddly enough, he was looking for a piece of ground in Georgia, and Jim and I had worked on this particular property back in 2007 we had looked at it with davis love and uh looking about building a golf course there so we knew of the character and the quality of it and now this is a completely different approach to how we tackled that that landscape but we introduced michael to the land and he fell in love with it immediately and so we one of those projects that's kind of come back to us which we're delighted about but when we we're approached also about doing the match play component. Jim and I were excited about the the thought of, Hey, we can build holes. We can take a few more chances. We can build more heroic type setups where there's a lot of risk reward that if you take on the big challenge, you're going to get the big reward. And if you play away from that, you're going to have to you know work to, to score. But the thought was, you know, nobody's writing nine or a 10 on their scorecard. It's just, you've lost the hole. So why not, you know, gamble with some pretty big stuff because, all right, you know, you just won down. And I think that that mentality was, was refreshing. It was liberating for us because so often you're focused on, all right, how, what's the playability and what's ultimately the, the score uh, that somebody's going to put or how you're going to, how do you design based on the, the notion of par? And I know we all, sort of in this circle of, of golf architecture aficionados, we, you know, par is irrelevant to us, but it's not to 99% of the golfers out there. That's really what they measure themselves up against. And the, the card and pencil mentality is, is unfortunately the reality. And so to be asked to design a golf course where the card and pencil mentality is thrown out the window. And as you said, frowned upon is, I mean, liberating is really the only word I can use because I think it, it just allowed us a fresh perspective on that landscape. Now, that landscape allowed us to build some dramatic golf holes and to have some really dramatic um, sandy features, util utilizing some of the beautiful live oaks on the property and then the variety of golf holes from along the lake at the start, which 
one of the nice things about working with Michael was, you know, the quintessential sort of American golf course and Southeastern American golf course would finish on the lake. You know, you'd have your par threes or your par fours and the hero, you know, all that stuff. And with the beauty of that landscape, we really felt like that was the worst part of it. Now it was a place we decided that would be the best place for the clubhouse because the beauty of it is, is fantastic. But we wanted to finish on the really cool choppy rolling ground in the sand as opposed to finishing on the water. So we went to Michael with the, the routing, the final decision. We said, Hey, we understand it's a really nice visual resource, but we don't really value it that highly from a golf standpoint. So can we have hole number one where you're overlooking the water and then hole number two where you're actually playing it and then see you later. And he was like, yeah, that's a cool idea. I'm fine with that. So it was, it was good looking at from a routing standpoint, we had all these diverse landscapes. We had the, you know, the along the lake to start. And then we had kind of rolling down into the woods, lower ground where we had to, you know, actually is hole number four, uh, as Jim refers to as sort of an architect's hole. We had to make that hole to connect the dots. And then you emerge out of there on five and six. And then by the time you hit seven, you start to get into this great rolling ground and the live oaks. And then, you know, by the time you get out on 10, you're out in the meadow. Then you're back into the live oaks and rolling around and finishing in that, that regard. So it was a wonderful landscape to be able to try to execute that thought process of building a match play course. And then because it's remote and because, you know, people are going to be staying on property with, all right, well, if you're, you know, maybe somewhere down the road, Michael might build another golf course. But for right now, you know, there's this 18 hole golf course. What can we do within the property that might allow you to have a different option to play? You know, I'm 54 years old. I love to walk and carry or have a caddy, but 36 full holes by the end of the day, I'm done. And I'd like to, you know, be able to enjoy having a libation and having, you know, some sitting around with the guys and having a good time without just feeling like I'm about to fall over asleep in my soup. So we thought, well, what if we create another loop of golf holes that would be, we've started referring to it as the afternoon round and thought, well, the afternoon round could be a much shorter golf course, much, you know, really a little bit more compact as far as walking is concerned. And so the concept became, well, what if we tack four holes on short holes, into the routing and then do this combination of where you play the first hole, then you skip over to six. And then you, you knock out so a couple of big long par fives and some of the longer walks between holes. And then you, you, know, you play seven, eight, nine, ten, and then you jump into A, B, C, D. And then that loops you back in across. And then you jump into hole 11, but not playing it as a par five, playing it as a short four. Anyway, the creativity involved in that, the, route, the final routing of the afternoon holes was Jim Wagner. I mean, he came up with even the idea of crossing over one of the other holes that you've already played. And so now you've got a, a but around 6,000 yard golf course that plays under par 70. And you're just, it's a fun alternative to get another 18 holes in, but not feel like you're getting beat up. And then the four afternoon holes, there's a really short par five, a really short par four, and then two par threes. So again, it's a small, it's a much smaller, tighter loop. And within all of that context, this Mike Walrath is just, you know, gave us the freedom and the ability to think outside the box. And he encouraged and welcomed that thinking, which matched his thinking about, I'm going to build a, you know, a club where um, we're going to embrace the spirit of match play and we're going to just enjoy that, that component of the game. So it's, it's one of the most special and interesting projects that we've ever been involved with. And I am excited for, for people to, to get, get a look at it. Something I noticed uh, with, Stream Song Black, a hoopie, even yesterday walked around Pinehurst Forest. Seems like, is walkability something that you think about? Because like, those were some of the most walkable courses, like even compared to the other courses at Stream Song Black. I feel like you're fresher after a round at Black than you are at you know one of the other courses. Is, do you think about that? We, we do because, uh, I mean, we're big believers that walking is the way the game is supposed to be played. And, and we would never begrudge somebody who physically needs a cart and that's the only way they can play golf. You know, that's great. Go ahead and, and, and take a cart. I mean, we're big, big proponents of push carts. I think that, you know, pull carts, whatever you want to call them. I think that that 
unfortunately there's a stigma around that here in the United States, which, you know, you go to the best clubs in Britain or in Australia and everybody's pulling their clubs around. I think anything you can do to get people to walk is the, it's the, the essence of the game. And, you know, golf courses have always been meant to be enjoyed at a walking pace. You know, Jim and I refer to it as golf at 55 miles an hour. When you're in a cart, you're just blowing through the landscape. You're not in touch with it. You're not in contact with the ground. You're not feeling the undulations. You're not visiting with everybody in your group. You know, if you and I are playing in, in a cart, we're basically spending four hours. Well, hopefully it's only four hours, you know, together, um, you know, whereas the other two guys, we're just going to see them up on the green and then that's it. And that's the only time we're going to get to be with them. Whereas when you're walking, you're, you're constantly changing, depending on which direction your ball went, you're walking with a different person and you're getting sort of to enjoy that experience much more. So it's in our minds, walking is, is gets you the feeling of being in nature, being on the ground, sets the right pace for the game of golf. So anything we can do within our designs to, to help keep that in the forefront. So we do, we put tees and greens in close proximity. We, we look at the opportunities that exist where not a lot of people are going to be playing the back tees. So maybe we'll sneak the back tees a little bit closer. And then, so you're just kind of, that then makes the forward tees, you know, sort of walking in progression. You know, you're just sort of moving in those direction, in that direction. So I think it's one of those things where we're, we're cognizant of it. We're big believers that we we want to push the envelope as much as we can to, to enable walking, to be comfortable. And, and, you know, I think one of the things we love so much about these great old classic golf courses, we love the features, we love the variety, we love the way that they sit in the landscape, but we also love that compact nature of just sort of green next tee. And there's just something that that's right about that. And, you know, unfortunately a lot of what, a lot of what went wrong with golf architecture in the nineties and two thousands is just, you know, the golf courses weren't being built where golf was the primary focus. A lot of them were real estate driven and then that just lent to the cart mentality and not just couldn't physically walk the golf courses. There was so much separation between holes. And so I think what, what we're focused on, what, what Bill and Ben do, what, what Tom Doak does. I mean, we really are trying, we've been really fortunate to have these types of landscapes where we can build walking golf courses and owners that embrace that feel. But within, within that, we feel very strongly that we want to push the envelope as, as close as we can to, to make the golf courses as compact as possible. We talked about par with regards to a hoopie. If you could remove par from one of your other courses, which one would it be? Uh, probably the Olympic course. Uh, I think the Olympic course in Rio, you know, we purposely designed it as a par 71 and because we didn't want, we thought that in a developing country or, or with a golf course is going to be on the world stage and a lot of sort of developing countries watching golf in the Olympics, um, that there was the opportunity to show that golf doesn't have to be 7,500 yards par 72, that there, there can be a differentiation in par and par 71 is, is fine. So we built that golf course with a ton of half par holes, really just thinking that the flexibility that's afforded in that would, would be fun to watch and fun to play. So I think if that golf course really just par was irrelevant and it was just go out there and, and play golf. And I really, really wish that golf in the Olympics would have had a match play component to it would have been so much. I, I think from our standpoint, it would have been much more compelling and interesting and there could have been a team competition and, and, you know, it was great. We were, we were fortunate that we got to see Justin Rose and Henrik Stenson battle down the final golf hole and make decisions on how they played that golf hole to, to win a gold medal. And so I think from that standpoint, it was, it was exciting and, and thrilling, but it, it would have been so cool to see people see them play match play on that golf course. Yeah. I think if they did the, the way the NCAAs have it with like, they do the stroke play and then they got eight teams that advance and they do match play and it would be really cool. Um, but I think that people always say, well, like fielding a team of four is a lot harder for a lot of countries or five fielding a team of five. But I think that would lend itself to upsets, too. So it would be kind of neat to see if somebody could take down America. I agree. And then the other thing is that, 
you know, all you need are two. I mean, you just need two to make it, make a team. And, and, you know, you look at all the other sports and if a country, you know, there are a lot more American swimmers in other countries because they qualify. And if more Americans qualify or more Brits qualify, well, then that's because they've earned it. It's not because it was given to them. So if, if the Americans can field two teams of two and, uh, you know, Sweden can only field one team of two, well, that's just because the way the ranking system set up. So there were a lot of reasons for what, why they did what they did. And at the end of the day, it was very successful. So there's, you know, you really, it's hard to, to complain, but it, you know, I think us purists would have liked to have seen things a little bit more creative. Building the cradle here at Pinehurst, short course, nine hole, par three, I guess. Um, what kind of different liberties and different things can you do when you're doing a short course versus a regulation course well the thing about the cradle was that it everything about it was predicated on fun i mean we like to try and build golf courses that are fun to play and you know some people say we do a good job of that some people say we don't (laughs) there's some too difficult occasionally but you know we we think and and we've read a lot about it you know i think it was simpson and simpson and whether it's book about a sense of humor and golf architecture and i think that you know a lot of the earlier architects felt like that was an important part of of the the personality of a golf course was that you wanted to have some uh, humor in there and so when we were were tasked to try and figure out how to lay out a short course on on the ground that they gave us Jim and I looked at it and just thought about fun. Let's just build fun holes. Let's try and build you know, a variety of, of ways to play these golf holes, a variety of ways to, to approach them and attack them. Let's try and make them feel like they sit in the landscape quite nicely. Um, there was no edict to build nine holes. It was just whatever fit. Um, Jim and I both thought that if we could retain the, the two greens that were there. So the, originally where the cradle sits is was originally holes one on courses three and five. And so we kept the two greens, um, just as sort of an homage to, to the work, to the holes that were there. So that was always going to be part of the routing. So then it was just, how do we tackle this side hill site and, and try and get a variety of lengths and, and angles, et cetera, et cetera, and uphill, downhill. And so once that all fell into place, it, it became a focus on just fun, you know, and we, we looked at how do you play the, you know, punch ball green. We, we purposely put a flat spot above that green so people could sit in, you know, Adirondack chairs and watch shots come into it and cheer and yell or whatever it. So it was one of these things where, again, a little bit like a hoopy where you just, you weren't worried about the quote unquote shot values, you know, Oh, does this green going to be receptive to a, to a four hybrid or what's the potential range of shots people are going to hit into this green and what angle it was just like, okay, people are going to drop a ball on this tee and they're going to hit, they're going to figure out the best way to get onto the green. And for the most part, the shots are under hundred yards. So everybody should be able to tackle that. And I think one of the nicest compliments we got was from Rand Morissette who, you know, golf club Atlas, he, he, he played out there and he just loved, he said, you know, there's, you can see that every class of player can find, you know, a challenge level that's acceptable to their game. There's a lot, you know, you can putt, you can literally putt on every single hole if you wanted to, or there are whole locations there where a guy like yourself, who's an accomplished player, you got to hit some shots. I mean, you really, you can't just fake it, but if you're not worried about posting a score and you're just out there, I mean, Tracy and I have played it a number of times. We play in 45 minutes. We have a ball. I mean, it's just, it's all about fun. And that's, that's, I think something that's been missing from the game a little bit. And I think if we can inject that into, into the game and get people um, attracted to the game or, you know, just sort of say, Hey, this is a, there's a much more relaxed vibe that goes with this setting here, as opposed to a lot of the sort of, uh, high stress levels that people associate with golf, especially when they're first coming to the game, then I, then I think the cradle will be, be successful in that regard. And I mean, it's, and they gave us the front yard of the resort. I mean, you walk right out of the clubhouse and it's just there right there in your face. And for, for Pinehurst to recognize that, you know, this prime real estate should be dedicated to fun and just people out there having a good time, I think really sends a great message to the rest of the golf industry of, of where some of our priorities should be. It's funny. I I I played 
I went around it a couple times and uh I played with this older gentleman one time and I I just was using a seven iron and a putter and I could see him like looking into his bag and he's like oh, dang I forgot my because like he had a, like a nine iron through wedge and he, he didn't hit it very far but you could tell like he saw me like running it off different stuff and like he wanted to do it and it's it's so interesting because it brings I think it that these types of courses have the, you know, ability to get people to use their imagination more on the golf course, as opposed to the traditional aerial American golf. I agree. I mean, I think it's one of the things that we love to put into our designs and we love watching, you know, Augusta seems to be the one time a year where you actually get to see it on TV or, or the open championship is that, you know, when guys look, in a different direction to get from A to B as opposed to the direct line. And, and I think that that, that adds so much to the fun quotient and the, the fun factor, as we say. So I, I, I think that's great that he was able to see that. I mean, that's one of the nice things about the cradle is when you walk past it or when you drive past it and you just see the smiles on the people's faces and you see grandparents out there with their grandkids, it, in a way it's almost the most successful thing we've ever done because it has, captured the imagination and it's, it's really done it's everything we had hoped it would do it seems to be doing and that's that's really gratifying and rewarding in itself say you were tasked with building a municipal course what would you what would be the core principles yeah i don't think the core principles would change from what we believe in I, you know i i think we, we we try not to dumb down golf courses just because of, you know, we maybe put, like we did at the Olympic course, maybe more short grass, quote unquote, hazards, uh, you know, humps and bumps and hollows that you play through instead of bunkers. Um, but we like to build wide golf courses, so I think it'd stay, it would stay wide. I think that the recovery options would still be there. I think angles would still be relevant. Um you know, it, it's it's not something that we go into each project and we say, "Hey, this is this is X." I mean, we, we obviously the client is going to dictate some of that. I mean, they're going to say, "This is you know, we've hired you, let's and we have the conversation. This is what we need to accomplish. This is what we want to do." So a municipality would have its requirements, and we'd have to accommodate those types of things. But from a design standpoint, we would really, I think, focus on trying to still build a compelling and interesting test because. I think people like, I mean, it, it's not a class thing. Like good design doesn't belong in a certain class. It's, only, it's not only for, for wealthy private clubs. It's for everybody. And, and you can see, uh, you know, Goat Hill in, in California, you know, Winter Park in, in Orlando. I mean, these are fun and interesting courses that are very playable, yet they're sound architecturally. They're not just sort of, you know, okay, just beat it around and don't pay attention. So I think we would always still try to focus on building interesting golf courses, no matter what the, what the setting. Yeah, that's, I think there's a huge market there in the future of doing stuff that's good instead of just having like the monotonous muni that I grew up playing. Um, so as far as golf courses around the country, you know, say you get 10 rounds, you can take multiple at different courses you can you could use all 10 at one if you wanted what would be your what would be how would you split them um boy oh boy that's a good one uh it's a hard one it really is i i mean you'd have to you'd have to say or if i was going to play multiple rounds it would probably be at national golf links i mean that's like my aside from the old course so you did ask me in the united states so i mean we'll do, yeah we'll keep it to the u.s yeah national would probably be three rounds i'd have to say because i it's just all about fun i mean i'm an average golfer at best so i don't need to get beat up and you can get beat up at national if you're not paying attention but you can also have the most fun golf experience you've ever had in your life so i think that that would be we'll say three there um you've got a fisher's island shirt on so that would at least be one or two there again just for the beauty and and the thing about fishers is that you know, everybody talks about the views and, but there's such great architecture there. 
I mean, Rainer, the angles and the things, the landforms he used and the setup. I mean, it is. The spines and the greens. Yeah. I mean, that's the stuff that, like, he he had those bold external contours. But then when you look at the interiors of the greens, I think that's where he's unbelievable. I mean, like, the greens are just unbelievable at every Rainer you go to. You look at, like, what's inside. And then the unpinnable surfaces, like, I think that's something that people just don't understand. It's unpinnable surface. Yeah, it, and it's, yeah, I mean, Fishers is a special place. And we've had the great fortune of, of being there consulting architects for 20-plus years. So it's been just this sort of uncovering, <clears throat> peeling back the layers of, and, it, yeah, it's it's a wonderful, wonderful spot. So that would get me another one. Cypress Point, you'd have to put in there. So that gets me to five. Uh, L.A. North would be another just again, I think, you know, our experiences there, how much we've learned and, and just how enjoyable, how playable it is. Pine Valley, again, just for the, the sheer perfection of 18 holes routed through an amazing landscape and having the variety and the, the drama. I mean, talk about 18 unforgettable holes on a, on a and golf course. So that's, that would be another one. Um, you know, fun, fun, fun golf would be like myopia hunt club. I mean, that's just a blast to be out in that setting. And now I'm, I'm like totally on the snob appeal here, right? Cause I've got like all these top private clubs. Um, <laughs> and you know, the, the one golf course that, that we've built, I think that's nine. So hopefully 10 that every time I play it, I go, man, I wish I played here more. And it's Boston golf club. There's just something about it. It's, it's, um, you know, I think it was early on in our career. We were, had the luxury of a lot of time. You know, the owner there was, the owners were sort of, hey, let's take two years to build this. This is Boston. You know, the weather's not going to cooperate. Gave us a great piece of ground. And there's just, again, I, I think an emphasis on what we believe in architecture. A lot of fun. There's a lot of width. There's trouble. I mean, you can, you can get yourself in places that you don't want to be. So there's a little bit of Pine Valley in it in that regard. But I think... Yeah, if we had to pick, and this, I'm going to piss off all the other clubs we've ever built or designed, but, you know, I think probably one round of Boston Golf Club would be fun. It's funny, though, because, like, that answer could change, like, three months later. You could play somewhere. That's, like, the beauty of golf course. You play somewhere. The more you play somewhere, the more you appreciate it. You might learn something about some place, like, your 150th time around that, you're like, the light goes on, you know, and you're like, whoa. Yeah. And I mean, I'm sitting here now and I'm just in the back of my head. I'm going, well, you know, Sandhills, duh. I mean, that was just, you know, you just, there's so many great golf courses that, that are out there that, you know, obviously we're all fortunate to anybody who's listening to this is interested in in what we do and, and, and in this topic in particular, there's just, yeah, that, that 10, 10, that's a tough one. May have to peel one of uh, nationals back and, and put Sandhills in there. (laughs) Say uh, you get one hole in your backyard. It could be someone else's hole. It could be one of your holes. What would it be? Yeah, the <clears throat> one of my favorite holes to play in the world is number four at Fisher's Island. So, you know, the nice thing about that is the Atlantic Ocean would be in my backyard. So that would be a really cool, uh, you know, bump obviously up your property. Value. Yeah, exactly. That would be a pretty exciting place to sit. But yeah, for it at, at Fishers is so cool. I mean, it's just, you know, the combination of the Alps and the punch bowl is, is really special and unique and different. And just the, the tee shot you know, with the, the ocean lurking down the right-hand side, but the further, you know, it's one of those things you talk about, everybody's overwhelmed by the beauty of that golf hole, but it really is a strategic hole. You play close to that edge and you actually get a look around the corner into the bowl. Now, granted with the way people hit it now, it might be a little bit short uh, for better players, but it's, um, you could just put a hickory driver out there. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just knock it around with that. But every time I walk over that hill, and look down into that bowl, the, the anticipation of where is my shot, where is where did it find? I love that. I can I never ever get tired of that type of shot. I know some people really dislike blind shots, but in my mind, that 
that's one of the greatest walks. We talk about walking golf courses. I feel like people get robbed when they play that golf hole in a cart because they drive around the side and they never get that experience of coming up and over and walking down into that bowl because that, in my mind, is just it's a glorious setting. But there's the combination of the beauty of the setting and with that anticipation of the result. And I just think that that's fun. The stretch of three through, like, I, th- I think 12 is like the most underrated hole out there, but like three through 12, I mean, 13, they're all good, but three through 12 is like one of the most exhilarating stretches of golf in the world. I agree. Yeah, it really is. It's, it's a special, special place. Have you ever walked around on that? You know, most people don't know that, that there was originally 36 holes routed there. Yes. Yeah, I've never I've never tried to walk the other golf course. I know where it was intended to be, but did you try and walk all 18? Did you get kicked off of somebody's property? <laughs> I just I got the book and I was yeah. reading about it and Rainer said it was maybe more dramatic than the other one and so you always want it's like you always wonder what would have happened had the Great Depression not happened. Sure. That yeah. that just that killed golf in America. Yeah. Um we do a overrated underrated segment so okay you you have to either pick overrated or underrated on on what you know these different topics you can add explanation or you can just say one or the other okay centerline bunkers underrated i think that they're they're interesting um we recently put them in on a hole on the pga tour at tpc boston and the uh it was met with a uh, vitriol of which we have not been familiar <laughs> um, on a lot of our work. So unfortunately, they've been removed from that golf hole. But I, I think they ask a question that most golfers are not comfortable answering because we are. It's been so ingrained in us that the the technically perfect golf shot is down the middle of a hole, and when all of a sudden the architecture requires the technically perfect golf shot not to be struck or not, you know, that it's going to get into trouble. People lose their minds on that. And I just think that that from an architect's perspective is a very interesting uh, thing to try and insert. Now you don't want 18 holes of it, but you definitely want to put it in once or twice in a round and make people decide left or right. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. I've, I've talked to some professional golfers and it's like i hate that bunker in the middle of the fairway i was like well why well that's right where i want to hit it well like on this hole you don't you either want to hit it short or left or go right of it or over it isn't that more interesting no because that's right where i want to hit it and they just can't get it out of their head that that's not where you want to be on a hole and so i guess from that standpoint i i I really like them actually it's funny there's a guy i had on the podcast scott fawcett he does uh, course management for like pros and high level players and college teams. And he talked about the formulaic nature of most golf course architecture and how he could do his job without it even really like studying the course. And then I saw a comment he made about Trinity Forest where he thought it was silly and he couldn't, he was having trouble. And it's so funny because it's like, well, it's not formulaic. There's there it forces you to make decisions. Decisions change on a daily basis. It's like now, like how can you not say like who cares about score when something requires decision and execution versus just execution? I I couldn't agree with you more. I'm excited to watch Trinity Forest and and see what the players. I ex, the expectation is that a lot of them won't like it or get it, and you know. That's unfortunate because anytime somebody tries to do something interesting and and ask these questions of players and have them make decisions and have the the proper way to play a golf course when it's when it requires thoughtful consideration and study and care and approach that that's the highest that's the highest point of golf course architecture and and when that happens a lot of times in professional events, it's poo-pooed or, or said, well, that's not right because, it's like you said, it's not formulaic. It doesn't fit the mold. And so I think that it's going to require 
I, I would almost guarantee that the champion there is going to be a thoughtful player. It's going to be a player, obviously, who can control their ball in the wind, but is somebody who can actually think their way around a golf course. And that that, in my mind, should be applauded at a higher level than the players who are just going to say, ah, I don't get this. You know, that unfortunately, the way the, the media is not just golf media, all media, they want the negative. They want that big impact splash instead of a guy who says, hey, this is great. It's really thoughtful, et cetera. They want the guy who says, well, this sucks. Mm-hmm. And so that's unfortunately probably what we're going to hear more of. But I, I'll, I'll be excited to watch that tournament, more excited than probably almost any tournament this year. I'm calling it the fourth major. I <laughs> love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I hope it. I hope it doesn't rain. That's like my. I want. I. I just. It's if it's firm. I think it'll be just fascinating to watch. I agree. So um, scale. Underrated. I, I think that scale is an important component of everything we do as golf course architects. I think that the uh, the appropriate scale, whether the human eye, you know, sort of actively appreciates it, I think it's just it, the human eye and brain in, intuitively understands when something's in proper scale as opposed to out of scale. And I think golf courses that are out of scale or features that are out of scale just don't feel right. And I think that that's easy, you know, so I I think that an understanding of scale is probably the most important thing I learned in in landscape architecture. You know, a lot of what we studied there really had no relevancy to golf course design, but scale was one of the most important elements of sort of the arrangement of a landscape in scale and harmony with nature. I think every golf course, if you can accomplish those goals and make it feel like it's in harmony with its site and its setting and and the scale of it is appropriate from a presentation standpoint those are the best golf courses philly cheese steaks real philly cheese steaks are are underrated outside of philadelphia it's over i would never buy a cheesesteak outside of philadelphia they're just horrible there's just something i don't know what it is it's probably all the bad chemicals in the in the cheese whiz etc that we put into them in philadelphia but they're in philly they're awesome what's what's your spot in philly we just have a local place you know it's so we don't i don't go to pat's or gino's and you know we rarely are in the city you know my days of, of drinking in excess until 2 a.m. are over. So it's one of those things where I'm not going to show up at Pasagino's after being on South Street for, you know, hours drinking beers. So it's just, it's a, it's a local spot for us that we go to. It's Anthony's in Malvern. Mm-hmm. I have a, Italian beefs are better than Philly cheesesteaks. Just, <laughs> you know, the Chicago one. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, I like the Chicago hot dogs, those Vienna beef hot dogs. Those are awesome. And yeah. the little, the, the rolls with the little poppy, poppy seeds on, seed. fantastic. The sauerkraut and brown mustard, perfect. Ah, you know, not even having a Chicago, real Chicago. I right? know. I don't like all that fruity, relishy stuff and onions. And... I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need a Chicago dogs. So I'll probably get a lot of hate mail from that. But uh, what about desert golf? I don't, I don't really even think about desert golf all that much. I think there was a time where it was overrated because it was a novelty. It was sort of okay. You know, there was a time in the 80s and 90s where the dramatic sort of difference between green grass and, and desert landscape was, was to be promoted and, and sort of highly thought of as, as a new, hey, look, at this is the new frontier. You know, obviously people are moving to this area and now we can irrigate and build golf courses in it. Uh, I think if if good architects build golf courses in those settings, like you know Bill and Ben have done a few golf courses down there. I think uh, Tom Weisskopf and the TPC Scottsdale is really thoughtful architecture and well laid out. So I mean, those I think are great golf, are fantastic golf courses in a desert setting. But as the whole the whole setting of what I've seen of desert golf is probably overrated. Um, what's uh, the last one? Who's the most underrated band and who's the most overrated band? Wow. 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 Overrated. I've, I've never been a fan of the who I, I just, 
you know, I like Led Zeppelin. I mean, of that sort of genre, I really I enjoy Led Zeppelin and the Stones. And I, but the Who is kind of, eh, I can, I can give her. You know, one of the guys I play golf with, he would play the Who live at Leeds over and over again on when we were playing it. I think maybe that just totally put me off of them. So I'd say they're probably uh, highly. I would probably be my overrated band, underrated. So I guess the the answer to that question would would come if I could see any band sort of back together and play and you know in their it, prime, yeah, and, and, or even just even now to go back and just get back together. I loved the Talking Heads growing up. I just and I still love the Talking Heads. I mean, anytime Burning Down the House comes on, like the speakers just going up. I it's just one of those things. I just I've always and to see them again would be really cool. And they're actually I think all four of them still alive, so it would be a possibility. So, yeah, I I think from a sort of that genre, you know, that new wave time frame where things were sort of changing and going over, they they did a really cool job of straddling that punk new wave rock line and david Byrne, i think is really uh, an amazing performer so yeah i probably would go talking heads they have some songs that there are a few songs where you can listen to it in any setting yeah that's true and and like you could be just chilling like on your couch night in you could you could be at a rager (laughs) you could put it on and everybody be like yeah. You know, another band that I really like that I think, I think they do, they're very artist, artisty is uh, Counting Crows. I listen to Counting Crows all the time, just sort of, you know, as a more mellow alternative, but you know, you don't hear a ton of, ton about them. And obviously I mean, we've already had the, the huge dead, deadhead and, and Dave Matthews are my favorites, but I don't want to get them into the conversation of overrated, underrated. I got a one last question. It's a, it's a theory that I I've thought of a lot. I asked Jeff Ogilvy about this, and he, he actually was like, "I actually think about that too." Do you ever think about like the trends in architecture as music genres, like where Pete Dye was like this kind of music uh, with his style of architecture, and the Golden Age was this, and like. Yeah, I do. I actually do. I think there's, you know, there's something to that. And I also think about architects and obviously and the personalities of sort of, okay, you know, Bill Coor would be like James Taylor. He would just be the most <laughs> mellow, relaxed, but so good. <laughs> I mean, so yeah, we, we definitely, I, I, I give that some thought. And, you know, when you're in the bulldozer and you're pushing dirt for a long period of time, there's all kinds of things that cross your mind. <laughs> and that might be one of them that, uh, um, you know, and as we talked about my appreciation for music and, and the involvement it has actually in, in, in our working, my working environment is, is pretty, pretty cool. All right, Gil, thanks so much for the time. Uh, we look forward to seeing your new designs and all that's, uh, not just going on now, but what's going on in the future. And thanks, uh, for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Cheers. You've been listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. We do the digging for you. 